Hello and welcome. I'm Uri, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. Unfortunately, Rifki was not able to record with me this week. We hope to have her back next week. But last time we recorded, we spoke to Laser Berman, a reporter for the Times of Israel, as he was literally on his way, on a train, on his way into Ukraine. And he spent, I think, a little over a week there, uh, reporting there for Times of Israel. And we'll link to some of the articles that he wrote from Ukraine. And we thought it would be interesting to follow up with Laser and to hear firsthand what it was like being in Ukraine during this war. So here is my interview with Laser Berman. So we are here again with Laser Berman. He's the diplomatic reporter for the Times of Israel. And Laser, I want to start by saying that I'm really glad that you made it back to Israel safely. Thank you for talking to us again today. I'm happy I made it too, and I'm happy to be here. So the last time we spoke to you, you were on a train uh, on your way from Poland into Ukraine. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about what happened in the interim and some of your reflections on uh, being in Ukraine during this war? Sure. That seems like a long, long time ago. I guess it was less than two weeks ago. But um, yeah, so I spent those that the interim time in Lviv, which is the major Western Ukrainian city. Mm-hmm. Um, which was once a third Jewish, has a, a one a rich Jewish historical past until, of course, uh, Second World War, the Holocaust. Um, so I spent some time with the Jewish community of today, which is only a few thousand Jews, um, in, in a synagogue, one of the two synagogues that that survived the Holocaust. Uh, much of my time was spent with uh, different locals who are pitching into the effort in different ways. So they're either volunteering for the war effort. Um, and I'm not saying they're joining up. Mm-hmm. Those are many other uh, Ukrainians as well, but people who are pitching in as volunteers however they can. So there was uh, university students who are sewing these camouflage nets. They're staying up all night to do that. So that's trying to pitch in directly to the war effort. And then there's um, people who are just doing whatever they can to house the refugees. You have hundreds of thousands of refugees moving west. So restaurants, the ones that are open, are giving up food for free and making hundreds of, of meals a day for wow. refugees and you know, whoever can pay that you pay. So you got to see the Ukrainian people as it was um, enlisted volunteering in the war effort. And that, mm-hmm. that was something uh, quite uh, striking to see. And then I also spoke to some political military leaders in Lviv. So the mayor, uh, the governor, the, the regional military commander, things like that. So it, it was, a, it was, uh, I think a pretty good observation and experience of a city in a country at war, even though let's stress that Lviv is not Kharkiv, it's not Kiev, it's not Mar- Mariupol, it's not one of the cities that are coming under direct attack right now from the Russians. Right, but although I saw in the last couple of days, the fighting seems to be getting closer to the to the west. So the, the ground forces really aren't. The Russian ground forces are kind of mm-hmm. stopped as they try to figure out what their next steps are and how do they solve their logistic problems and get some reinforcements including from syria maybe um but you are referring to something which is correct which is uh airstrikes right missile strikes on a, a base which is in the Lvov region um which yeah is certainly something that is somewhat of an escalation or a new stage because this is right near the polish border or close to the polish polish border it's near the city that hasn't been the target of attacks and of course the polish border is also the nato border so right uh, there's plenty of opportunity here for dangerous escalation do you see the war going there, or do you think that was an isolated incident? 
I think military, this is a military target. A base is, let's uh-huh. be clear, you know, it, we could be very opposed to the morality of the war in general and how the Russians have carried out much of it, but in war you are allowed to strike military targets. Right. So if this was indeed a military base, that's what it seems like, and they're, they're targeting a military base, that, that's a legitimate target. Um, will they continue to strike military targets in that part of the country? I imagine, yes, they have. there's been a recent focus on more air fields, fields, uh, surprisingly, the Russians have not been able to knock out the Ukrainian air force and air defense in the early days of the war, which is absolutely surprising. Yeah. The difference in capabilities is so stark, but they really haven't been able to. So I imagine uh, that as that uh, failure persists and as Russian frustration grows, we'll see new targets in the west of the country as well. Mm-hmm. So in your experience on the ground, um, dealing face-to-face with um, all these Ukrainians experiencing this war, was there anything that surprised you that was unexpected? Sure, uh, you know, just observing the way the city goes about uh, being at war. You know, my experience is mostly from the Israeli context, where we try to keep things as normal as possible. We try to keep things open if we can. We keep public transportation going. We keep our kids in school, mm-hmm. etc. I think that a very different approach was taken in Ukraine. You can't buy alcohol anymore. Mm. Interesting. Kind of unconnected to the war effort. Um, they asked people to turn off their location devices on their phones so the Russians wouldn't know where masses of people are. Uh, gyms are closed. Schools are closed. And you even talk about, are they going to be reopened? People can give you a weird look. So that might change, of course, because you know, mm-hmm. if this, as this thing drags on, they need uh, the ability. It's more of a marathon. They need the ability to, to go back to normal, right. to, as much as they can and to try to get away from it. You can't be you know, in war all the time. I think that's what we've learned in Israel. So I think that, that was striking. Um, it was also what was somewhat unnerving was the paranoia about Russian agents. Uh, so you have soldiers walking around stopping you, asking for documents, which is fine. But you also have all these civilian volunteers who volunteered, ex- who like signed up exactly two days ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have no sort of uniform except that yellow band. And, and when they stop you, it's much less predictable. Mm-hmm. And I'll remind you that that Israeli civilian uh, Roman Brodsky, who was who was killed as he was trying to leave Ukraine, was killed by one of these civilian volunteers who mistook him for a Chechen. So things are much less predictable when you have this paranoia and civilians that are not trained, sometimes are armed. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess the high stress uh, it can lead to some dangerous outcomes in those kind <laughs> of situations. Um, I mean, there's so much I want to ask if we don't have a lot of time, but I mean, something that I just keep thinking about it. Uh, Obviously, as each day that goes on in this war, the humanitarian catastrophe uh, becomes more and more clear and terrible. But aside from just the black and white situation of like Russia and Putin invading Ukraine and targeting civilians and all these horrible things, is there anything in your estimation that Westerners or the mainstream media is missing or getting wrong when it comes to this conflict? That's a, that's a that's a good question. That's a big question. Um, I th- I think the the coverage and the understanding has been, has been fairly good. Uh, I think there's not been much about Zelensky as a person. You know, it's, he's kind of come into the he came into the public eye, especially in the Jewish community when he was elected. You know, from the side there was a Jewish president, mm-hmm. and of course a Jewish prime minister at the same time as well. And then he came back because how, how well he's done in terms of his communication as a war leader. Um, I think it's important to remember that Zelensky came into office promising to end the ongoing conflict with Russia. He was seen as someone who was probably pro-Russian because he grew up as a Russian speaker right. in, in the southeast in a working class town. So he was kind of the type of person that Putin would expect would be able to make a deal. And many people expected him to make a deal. And I think Putin was surprised with how... Um, 
forcefully and powerfully he has uh, you know uh, led the the public messaging about the Ukrainian resistance and, and the Ukrainian uh, patriotism. So mm-hmm. I think that's important uh, to realize. You know, it might not be the most crucial, but that's important to realize about Zelensky how much of a surprise he is. And you know, we, we know his story. He started out as a com- as a comedian. Much of his career was built in Moscow and in Russia. Mm-hmm. He was a comedian in the Russian language, so he's well known in Russia. Um, and, and I think it should be emphasized that some of his messaging that he's done, he's done these very interesting you know, social media videos, selfie videos, has also been done in the Russian language for Russians, speaking directly to the Russian people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those have been seen in Russia as well. So yeah. uh, I think that's an important aspect uh, as well that, that hasn't been mm-hmm. that reported on. Yeah, I mean, I think Zelensky's Russian background is very interesting and maybe ironic here. But I think another thing about Zelensky is that I think rightfully um, the world and at least in America, from what I'm seeing, really seem to be portraying him as a hero. He's definitely being very brave um, for 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 sticking around and for um, really putting up a fight and trying to defend, um, you know, the, the, the Ukrainian people from this from this attack. But this is a little bit of a sensitive question um and i'm not exactly sure what my opinion or what i think about it is but like is there an argument to be made which i don't really see people saying maybe because they're scared to say it but like putting up this fight and defending the country while very commendable and brave is leading to tremendous loss of life and is there an argument to be made that maybe the best thing right now would be for Ukraine to surrender, let's even say temporarily, and then let the rest of the world, Europe, America, pressure Russia to, you know, step away. But in the meantime, you know, as much of the people are so surprised, the world is shocked how much of a fight Ukraine is putting up and how how well they're defending themselves, which is amazing. But it's, do you hear what I'm saying? Like there's still, the Russian army is still so much bigger. If it doesn't, if it didn't take two days, it might take two months, uh, but Russia will probably win in one form or another. And what's going to be left at the end? What's going to be left of Ukraine at the end? Uh, I hear what you're saying. I, I, in the way I, you know, put build my moral compass around war, I think that, that certainly we can't go down that route. You know, if, if we had, then we probably wouldn't have, uh, encourage Israel to fight very hard in 48, and we wouldn't have encouraged uh, Britain to resist the, the German bombing of you know, the Blitz in 1940. Well, um, the question is, is it the same as those examples? Like, in in Israel defending itself in 1948 and 67, you know, the alternative, the, the logical next step would be they would be destroyed and possibly massacred if they laid down their arms, you know? And same thing with the Nazi attack um, in Europe in World War II. I don't think think people are saying that's what would happen here. I don't nobody's really saying that Putin wants to massacre the Ukrainian people. He just wants to control them. Isn't that true? Yeah, but I assume there would be some killing of of uh you know leaders and people are seen as potential threats. But even without it, if we take World War II examples like uh France and especially the Battle of Britain, Hitler had no desire to murder every Brit. He just wanted them mm-hmm. kind of out of the Western alliance and to get to some arrangement with them and want to knock them out of the war. Mm-hmm. But we see that as a very moral act. You know, tens of thousands of Brits died in, in the Blitz and, you know, countless Germans as well. But, you know, part of the morality of war is that countries get to defend themselves. If not, if, if the idea is that if people are going to die, then they shouldn't resist and we shouldn't have them resist, then you have created an international formula for 
powerful countries to right. just you know, have their slope. way around. And right. It, it, I think it's not even a slippery. I think it's just you know a chasm that we're at mm-hmm. at the end. So that's certainly not the morality the way I would see it mm-hmm. uh, in any way. No, I understand that. Um, Rifki asked you last time about the Iran talks currently happening, and I understand that they're now completely stalled. Um, have you been following that? And what is the connection between the Iran talks and what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah, so a stall, I don't know if I would say, they're, they're on pause. Mm-hmm. And the official reason was because of external factors. I think, I think you know, mm-hmm. the external factors are the war in Ukraine. Uh, so that's the direct connection. Um, at the same time, we saw this, this, this missile attack uh, in Erbil uh, on the American consulate, and it seems to be from Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, we can speculate what the connection is there, whether they saw an opportunity with the world's attention uh, in Europe or whether it was a signal. You know, we can speculate in any which way, but there's certainly a connection. There can't not be a connection. And certainly the world's attention is is in Ukraine. Now, the question is whether that will encourage uh, the U.S. and Europe to try to just cut a deal even a worse deal in Vienna so that they can focus on these bigger problems. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it'll shake them up and, and say, okay, we have to start being tougher on these potential threats. So it can go in a way that is uh, either closer to capitulation to running demands or, or more resistant. I can't really can't predict which way it'll go, mm-hmm. but there's no question it'll have effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the last question I'll ask you, because I know uh, you have to run, what is what is the current sentiment in Israel right now um, in regards to, first of all, I guess the U- Ukrainian refugees coming in, have there been many coming into Israel? And then more generally, uh, in terms of diplomacy and just sentiment uh, in terms of the Israeli people and viewing this conflict, which is a little bit complicated from Israel's perspective. Yeah, so I think the Israeli people are very much behind Ukraine and don't see any great friend in Russia, mm-hmm. generally speaking. There's a lot of concern and a desire to do what they can for Ukrainian refugees, both in Europe and the ones coming here. Um, so, so I think that's clear. Now, obviously, the government is somewhat different and the government's responsibilities are different. You know, an average person doesn't have to keep the country safe or that is a, um, a consideration that someone like Naftali Bennett has to, has to keep right. in mind. That is, as we know, is, is causing Israel to take a very, uh, basically not a very strong stance against Russia. Right. We have Lapid who's willing to condemn Russia, but the prime minister really isn't. And an argument could be made, if we're talking about the morality of it, that ultimately it's better for both sides if Israel is able to be the one that can mediate, if there's an open communication to Putin and that can bring an end, an end to the war mm-hmm. that is uh, satisfactory in some ways to both sides. So there is a case to be made there. But it also seems that Israel is playing a dangerous game here and that they are increasingly out of step with the West on sanctions, on, on statements, and even on refugees. It seems like the easiest one is to open its doors even wider for refugees. And we have images of you know, a few hundred refugees in the airport who are stalled there or mm-hmm. even get, get exported again. I think we can be much more magnanimous in letting in non-Jewish there's plenty of non-Jewish refugees come in, but refugees that have no connection to any Israeli family mm-hmm. in, in any way. I think you know, there's no sort of national security or demographic threat to having mm-hmm. even tens of thousands of non-Jewish Ukrainians here. Uh, you know, not in any permanent sense, but if they're here for a year, if they're here for two years, if they go to school here, if they work here, uh, I think that's that's fine, and I think we also have a moral obligation to do so. But you know, that, mm-hmm. that's a different debate. That's that's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add, you asked you know something earlier um, about know what is not maybe being reported on or, or what's being reported by uh, uh, um, maybe um, not exactly fully in the mm-hmm. news I think 
the idea that the, the Jewish community is just eager to get out of there and just come to mm-hmm. Israel and you know they're suffering there, I think is, is wrong. And I think there's an immorality there as well. There's a very rich Jewish community there. Um, if they wanted to, they would have come to Israel mostly. Right. Many of them came to Israel, didn't really like it, mm. went back, preferred to live there. So we shouldn't just be like, okay, come to Israel and that's it. We should be uh, interested in getting them back to where they want to go, reinvesting in Jewish life there, um, and, and really respecting the fact that there is a vibrant diaspora, I don't even like the word diaspora, vibrant uh, an ancient Jewish history there that has to exist and should exist alongside Jewish life in Israel and other countries. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's important as well. Uh, I saw that later today you're going to be speaking at a fundraiser for Ukraine. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So that's uh, with some friends in Jerusalem have asked me to do it, and that's in, in conjunction with the organization Babayit, which is kind of a Olin Young Professionals organization in town. Um, so I'm giving a talk at 8 p.m. and is a price of admission, I think 30, 50 shekels is the donation that goes to some causes uh, of refugees and in Ukraine. So mm, very nice. we are doing what we can to support. Yeah, good luck. I hope that goes well. Well, Laser, thanks so much Thank for, for speaking with me today. And we'll we'll link to some of your um, really, um, really enlightening pieces that you wrote um, while you were in Ukraine and after Ukraine. I found them very, very helpful and interesting to understand what's going on. Uh, so thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Thank you again to Laser, and thanks to all of you for listening. We would love for you to join this conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback and your comments. You can email us at talkingtachlispodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, Talking Podcast. See you next time. Sei gesund.